Westwood follows the joint football team located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So we've got Shorewood High School and Mesmer High School come together, two very different neighborhoods, but the team is comprised of boys from both schools. We follow them through uh, the hectic 2019 season. I recorded this interview with Brad and Emily the day after John Madden died, and their film, Messwood, is about a memorable coach in his own right, Coach Antoine Davis, who coaches the Messwood football team, which is a weird anomaly in Milwaukee. It's a combination of two schools, Mesmer High School, which is a predominantly Black school, and Shorewood High School, which is a predominantly white one, just a mile apart. The film delves into issues of race, but it ends up being as much about family, both the families that these young men who play on the team grow up in and the family of the football team, which Coach Davis does so much to forge through his personality, his training, his mentorship. What I like about Messwood is it manages to avoid a lot of the tropes of your typical sports film. It's not so much about how the team does on the field, but it's about the lives of these young men and the coaches who are helping mold them. It's also about the parents and their relationships with their sons and with the coaches. Brad Lichtenstein is an award-winning filmmaker who has been making documentaries since 1998. He's been nominated for two Emmys, and one, two DuPonts. His films include the virtual reality film, Ash 68, As Goes Janesville, the Al Jazeera America series, Hard Earned, the film Ghosts of Attica, and his most recent film prior to Messwood, When Claude Got Shot. Emily Keister is a producer and director at 371 Productions and has assisted in producing short and long form documentaries, virtual reality experiences, and podcasts. Messwood is her feature documentary directorial debut. Unfortunately, Emily had to leave midway through the interview for an obligation, but we were able to talk to Brad and get into some more of the issues around the film. So without further ado, my interview with Emily Keister and Brad Lichtenstein, the directors and producers of Messwood. Emily Keister and Brad Lichtenstein, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Thank you. This is for both of you. Why do you make documentary films? I'm an emerging filmmaker. I'm still early career. I at first did not think I wanted to make documentaries. And it was really when I started working with Brad at 371 that I saw how powerful documentary filmmaking can really be. And I think there's something very, very magical about being able to tell, you know, real people's stories. There's a authenticity there that I just fell in love with. I think that not only, you know, documentary films are inspiring and amazing, and they really can be about anything and everything, but there's also something that I, I love about the actual production and creation of a documentary film and being able to really get to know the people who open up their lives to us and forming that bond and building that trust and then having folks in your life for the rest of your life and for the rest of theirs and being able to share something so special. Once I got to live it, you know, it's something that you never forget and you never want to stop doing. For me, it really started with an experience when I was in high school of working for the late Congressman John Lewis here in Atlanta and discovering a passion for social change. And then a few years later, after college, during a fellowship, running into some documentary filmmakers, one of whom used to teach documentary at NYU. I went to NYU and started off getting a PhD in philosophy, but wandered over to the film people and got this great advice, which was just to go get internships to not waste my money on a degree. So I went and did that and got to work on some fascinating films right away, including a film about the history of the blues in America. And I figured out it was a way to link up my passion for social change and for filmmaking, which I had just discovered. I've been at it a long time, but for me, what 
is most exhilarating is both getting to know people, as Emily mentioned, and having new people in your life forever, hopefully, and also just continuing to refine the craft of creating a narrative and engaging with audiences, which I feel like the older I get, I feel like I'm finally learning how to do it, is what I'm trying to say. Your documentary, Messwood, is set in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So let's talk about Milwaukee for a second. First off, how far back does your relationship with the city of Milwaukee go? I grew up in rural Wisconsin. So little background context. I am a transracial adoptee. I was adopted and raised by a white family in a very white place. I turned 18 and knew that I needed to put myself in spaces where other Black folk were and build myself a community. So the moment I graduated high school, I moved to Milwaukee, went to the University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and started getting a film degree. Moved there at 18, and then I, I lived there until this last year when I moved to Atlanta. I was in Milwaukee for seven years. I moved to Milwaukee in 2003 from New York. My wife is a professor, and she got a job at the same university, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, which Emily attended and was the president of the student body, I might mention. I was first Black woman elected as a student body president, just a humble plug. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that means I've been there for 18 years. Race is clearly one of the key themes of Messwood. And while it's difficult, if not impossible, to summarize a city's relationship to the issue of race, if you can, I'd like you to discuss how issues like racial equity and opportunity, violence and segregation have been a part of Milwaukee's past and present. When I moved to Milwaukee from New York, which is hardly a perfect city for sure, But the segregation was so stark in Milwaukee, it was a shock to the system just to land there. When you look at Milwaukee, what you discover is that systemic inequity, which of course takes hold all over this country, has deeper roots in Milwaukee, less because of early discrimination and oppression, i.e. slavery, Jim Crow, Great Migration, What's unique, I think, to Milwaukee, which is consistently rated one of the worst cities to live in if you're Black, is that the industrial age, the automotive age, the great migration north to work in automotive plants and other plants in the 1950s and 1960s, it sort of bled over to these upper Midwest cities a little bit later in the 70s, so from Chicago up to Milwaukee. And what happened is a lot of those opportunities dried up, largely because those jobs were disappearing in the first place. And the people who were hit worse were largely communities of color who were living near plants that were then shut down and created these huge deserts inside the city of Milwaukee. Even today, there's a lot of effort at trying to refertilize, if you will, these deserts with housing and with amenities and grocery, et cetera. So on top of that, you also have housing segregation redlining that was practiced well into the 90s. So that really cemented a lot of the inequities in Milwaukee. And again, these are inequities that are stark. And on top of it, you have embedded racism that comes out behaviorally in attitudes and the way that people treat each other. One of the most compelling statistics that I became aware of when I was living there in the beginning is that even Black families of wealth, of means, choose to live in neighborhoods that are generally near the poverty level, but are Black, as opposed to living in uh, predominantly white areas like in the suburbs, just because the attitudes and the lack of inclusion is so stark, they would rather be somewhere where they feel comfortable rather than the typical move that you see in cities like Atlanta, where there are large Black and mixed enclaves of people who are upper middle class or upper class in wealth. So Milwaukee is just this very stark, segregated city that is trying hard, but has quite a mountain to climb. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that's beautifully said. People want to be where they're comfortable. And I think that there's an attitude in Milwaukee. People are growing up with this ingrained idea of it's important to be loyal to your people. I definitely noticed, you know, coming, I think, coming from an all white neighborhood and then coming to Milwaukee where I definitely felt like where is the community that I really fit into. And I struggled and still struggle to this day with feeling black enough for black spaces, but then too black for white spaces. I think Milwaukee almost amplified that feeling in me because people didn't know how almost to talk to someone who didn't look like them or didn't share experiences. You know, it's prevalent and it's there and it's become normal for the city. I do think there is so much good work happening in Milwaukee now and people every day are getting more prepared to have a conversation about what to do with the mindset of segregation in Milwaukee. I think it it does also reflect uh, a little bit of Wisconsin as well because Wisconsin is a state that's also ranked like the worst to grow up if you're black. It's the highest black male incarceration rate in the entire country. Right. I think Milwaukee is also like a product of the state that it's in and the area that it's in as well. You know, I think it's a window into what's really happening in this country. Take this story and this experience. People all over can relate to it because systematic oppression and racism have affected this entire country. So Messwood is about the Messwood football team, which is a combination of students coming from Mesmer High School and Shorewood High School in Milwaukee. Where did the idea for the film come from? It literally came from me sitting in a community meeting, which there's a little snippet of in the film, which was at Shorewood High School, where my kids go to school. And the community meeting was over a controversy that was sparked by a play, To Kill a Mockingbird, that was going to be performed And the decision was to use the N-word on stage. And there were some families of some of the Black students who did not like that idea. And more specifically, it was less that they didn't like that idea. They didn't like the fact that the school shied away from an open and honest discussion about the N-word being used in that context. Kind of points to how difficult issues of race are to talk about, particularly in a predominantly white suburban school, public school. And then I don't remember if I texted Emily that night or or the next day or saw her at work, but soon said, you know, hey, would you be interested in pursuing this film idea with me? I, I grew up at 371 as a filmmaker. Brad knew that my interest in my storytelling really was having conversations that bridge communities, specifically the communities that I've always felt trapped between. So, you know, white and black folk. It was the next day at work. You had come like the next day. I was like less than 12 hours and came into the office and, you know, we're talking about it. And you had that gut feeling that the film was there and shared it with me. And I was immediately like, yes, I want to be able to tell this story. We tried to get access to tell the To Kill a Mockingbird story and we did not get the access that we needed. But someone pointed us in the direction of the Messwood football team. We met the coaches, we met alumni, and then we started to meet players. And that's when we really knew, like, here's where our story is. And and here's where we can really tell the story of a team that bridges communities and be able to to share the stories of, honestly, young boys from all all across the city of Milwaukee. Not just the two neighborhoods, but the boys really do live in four different places in the city. When one door closes, a door and a window open over here. So we really took that opportunity to tell the story of the Messoid boys and fell in love with them and the coaching staff almost immediately. We pivoted and uh, Messoid was born. So access is obviously critically important in all films, but especially films that are set in high schools. How did you get that access and were there levels of access that you tried to get, but you couldn't within the schools? As Emily pointed out, we didn't get access to the classroom in the schools. We were basically shut down by, in particular, the English department, which was where To Kill a Mockingbird emanated from as a controversy. But the doors opened to us, to the team and to the families and their homes. Coach Davis was really key to our access. 
he's such a compelling person, uh, a black coach who also believes in creating a kind of safe space where race is not the central issue on the team. And a lot of what unfolds in the movie is kind of looking at that space that he's created and, and its dynamics. And he was really the person who said yes. That was after a lot of consultation he did with kids both on the team, but also more importantly, his alums who he puts a lot of stock into. It was a long journey to get that access. But then once it was there, we had just wide open doors to walk through. Once Coach Davis said yes, both school administrations, you know, respected him as a coach and his decision as head coach. And they also gave us the yes. So then we had access. So yes, Coach Antoine Davis, he is very much at the center of this football universe. He's a very intense guy. He's a former football player himself. He's a yeller. He swears. He scolds his players a lot. He's physical with his players on the field when he wants to show them things. But he's also, as you mentioned, he's deeply committed to the program, clearly cares about his players. He's a very sharp man. He's self-aware, I would say. Did you know what you were in store for when you first contacted him and eventually did give you access to the team? What, <laughs> what were your, your early impressions of Coach Davis as you saw him in action? Oh, Coach Davis, I think, yes, I knew what we were in store for and absolutely not. I, I knew we were going to get a man who cared deeply about his players. And that was very obvious. That was what was very important for us to show through the film. He never, never let us down in that aspect. And he really does love them all. I, I honestly meeting coach Davis was really intimidating the whole, the whole production because we shot Messwood in the span of a football season for high school, which was really only like two and a half months, give or take, you know, coach Davis is pretty intimidating, especially when he's trying to lead a football team or really varsity and JV. And we're trying to get lobs on him and we're running next to him with boom poles, just like trying to make sure, you know, that energy can be very intimidating. It was for me, but I the end of the day coach davis is all about respect and as long as you respect him and respect why he's there and respect his players and his staff like he will show you that in return as much as he can yell and swear and whatever coach davis is going to do you know you're going to you know be met with kindness and respect and and compassion i mean he's really truly just such a compassionate person even if he has a hard exterior Obviously, these are male-dominated spaces in the film, <laughs> the football field itself, the locker room, and so on. How was that for you as a director of this film? <laughs> well, teenage boys, like, football players smell really bad. I, that's, like, the first thing uh, that I always think of is that they all smell. I have a younger brother who plays football who's the same age as... Max, Amarion, and Fred. So I think that for me, I stepped into a big sister role with all of them very naturally, you know, and that was a benefit of having Brad and I as co-directors is I think that some of the boys really looked as Brad as more the the father figure or the adult in the room. And then I was much more of a, you know, they treated me like a peer. Very, very early on in the beginning, you know, I had to make sure that the boys respected me and understood, like, I am a director. I have a responsibility to this film. I also have a responsibility to all of them, but they do need to take me seriously. You know, there were times where it's obvious when we can joke around. And in that point, most of the time they would make fun of me or, you know, whatever teenage boys want to do, call me lame and things like that. There were times when we could joke around and have fun. And there were times where they had to listen to me. They listened to me for the most part and it was really good. But yeah, I, I just became one of the guys, I guess. <laughs> Amarion seems to be going through some difficult times with his mom, his living conditions, the impact that his uncle's death has had on him, and also really with just finding his place in the world as a young man. I believe, you know, it's you, Emily, who off camera asks him about his uncle. You ask if he's okay. And he says, yes, I am even when I'm not. 
which I found to be an extraordinary statement, really quite profound. I, I wanted to ask what it was like for you to be with him in that moment and to, I think, kind of take your director hat off for a moment and just relate to him as a fellow human being. By that time, Marion and I had grown pretty close. As you see, oftentimes after practice or after games, he would be kind of the last one there, not really having a ride slash not really knowing where he wanted to go to sleep that night. And so a lot of times, you know, that's when we would be wrapping up. So I gave Omarion a lot of rides home, you know, and like I said before, stepping into a big sister role was really natural for me. And then I related to Omarion probably the deepest because I also went to a predominantly white high school. And so I was used to that experience of kind of being the only black face in a room and, and Omarion was going through a really hard time. And he was, I think, expressing that with anger, definitely keeping people away, pushing people away. And it got really frustrating. And I, I think it was Brad at one point very early on was like, you know, they may be angry at you, but you have to be there for them. I kind of became his punching bag for a little bit. Let him, if he had emotions and he had feelings and he needed to be angry, I understood that he could direct that at me and I knew it wasn't personal. And, you know, I built his trust that way. And so when we had that conversation, I knew where my line was to push him, I guess because he trusted me even when he was angry at me, even when he didn't want to answer the questions. I just really cared about him and I knew he was hurting and I, I could feel it. I kept really hoping that he would open up and be honest with me. That's what that scene really was, was I just want to make sure you're okay. I, I am worried about you. He still struggles, but he is doing much better. He had to really do a lot of work on his own externally and internally to really figure out who he was. And he's still, he's still figuring it out, but yeah, I just became someone he could trust and I became a rock and I let him know, like, no matter how hard you say you don't want me in your life, I'm going to be there for you. So you're going to have to deal with it. Well, it's quite a moment in the film and it's clear from talking to you that you really did build up a relationship of trust with these young men and I'm sure they appreciate it. So unfortunately, we have to say goodbye to Emily. She has to run, but we are going to continue on with Brad. Thank you, Emily, and congratulations on Messwood. Yes, thank you all so much. Thank you for this, Ken. And I will talk to you all later. Bye, take care. Bye. Very early in the film, the issue of race is addressed. We hear you, Brad, off camera saying to Coach Davis, people look at the Messwood football team as a kind of paragon of racial harmony, but you say, that's not what you're about. And coach says, no, I've never thought about what other people are thinking about when it comes to this football program and that word race. You're trying to make a story out of nothing. I don't care what others think, it's football. This is our family, you can be in a bubble. That's how the world should be. I got the sense that he was a little ticked off perhaps with you (laughs) and your line of questioning and maybe felt you were coming in with an agenda that he didn't share. Is this a fair assessment of the dynamic going on here? I think it is a fair assessment. I don't know that I would use the word agenda so much as interest. And, you know, we talked a little bit about Milwaukee as the context for this movie. So I think it's a little impossible to not think about race when you're making a film about a football team made up of kids from a predominantly black school and a predominantly white school. Coach Davis and I sparred over that premise, if you will, uh, a lot. I think we probably both learned things from each other over the course of making the movie. I won't speak for him. I know I, I did. I think in combination of making the movie about him, and he's a bit of an anomaly, I think, in a lot of interesting ways, you know, not least of which is as a Black coach who is trying to create a kind of race-neutral space. Um, Also, we've seen many coaches, I think, in movies that practice tough love, but there's a level of compassion with him and a level of genuineness that you don't often see. And we've also seen sports movies about race, but it's usually got a white savior at the center often the coach. And in this case, obviously, that's not the way Messwood is 
constructed as a story. I, I think my relationship with Coach Davis remains one that's growing. I mean, he and I were texting recently about finding time to grab a beer and talk. He's extremely protective of his kids, as he should be. I remember during the Black Lives Matter protests after the, the murder of George Floyd, we were filming with Pieris, who decided to go to protests, and we filmed with Max, who was contemplating whether he wanted to. And Coach Davis showed up at Max's house just to be a kind of protective force because he was concerned that we might ask questions that Max may not be prepared to answer. And he wanted to be there for him. In the end, he he thought, oh, everything you want to know seems really interesting and important to know. So all that ended up on the editing room floor anyway, as it turns out. But nonetheless, it illustrates, I think, the level of commitment he has to his boys. And it's never ending. He always would say to us, you know, that he doesn't really know if he's affected a player until years down the road when they invite him for their son or daughter's birth or for one of the, the kids having some other milestone in their lives. The other thing is it's not so clear cut with him in terms of race and his players. I mean, toward the end of the film with many of his black players are struggling academically he has this idea to take the Mesmer players on a field trip to an event called the Circle City Classic, which is put on by historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. It's interesting to see him come up with this idea because it shows, I think, he does sometimes think about race in relation to his players. Did this come up in your conversations with him? Certainly you were there when they went on the field trip. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I try to have these conversations on camera because it's part of the dynamic of the film. So sort of what you see is, is what you get. There wasn't a lot on the cutting room floor that came from our discussion over how much, if at all, race is a factor in the way that the, the team's culture is built. Certainly what you just pointed out is true. Coach Davis says in the film, that when he walks out of his door, he knows he's a black man and that he's representing the image of a black man to a lot of his kids, whether they're black or white. So he's very conscious about race and taking the kids to an HBCU college fair, I think was a big statement for him. Obviously that's about blackness, in his case, black maleness. But mind you, he's also quick to say that there are white kids who he thinks can benefit from going to an HBCU as well. So he's always mindful of not letting himself get cornered into a stereotype. Let's talk about casting the player. There are four main characters among the players. There are the best friends, Amarion and Max, who are both sophomores at Shorewood. Fred, who's a sophomore at Mesmer. And Pieris, who is a senior at Mesmer. How did you end up with these four? We cast a wide net early on, probably looked at including maybe 12 kids at one point and actually did follow more than the four that we landed on. And there were a variety of factors, some obvious. We wanted a mix of white kids and black kids. As Emily pointed out earlier, we also were interested in kids who lived in different parts of the city and who came from different backgrounds. We also really were interested in the experience of Amarion, of being a Black kid in a predominantly white institution. Now, we wish that we had had more seniors to choose from, but unfortunately, this particular football season, there weren't that many seniors. But what we ended up with was, you know, one, one kid, Pierre, who's a senior, two kids who have an interracial, if you will, friendship at Shorewood, uh, Amarion and Max. Max is white. And then Fred, who we felt like was able to help us tell a different story, which was the academic story, since a lot of his struggle had to do with his academics and some of the legacy of trauma in his family, because his brother had been killed by gun violence a couple of years before we started filming. Documentaries that center on the world of sports, in this case, high school sports, are tricky. Mm -hmm. You need to be faithful to the rhythms, excitement, and suspense of the games and the season. 
but you also have to spend enough time away from the game so that we can get to know the characters you're following and explore the broader themes. How did you maintain this balance throughout knowing that football is a window into a world, but couldn't completely take over the film? That's a great question because you're up against a lot of tropes in a sports film. And I think we're lucky in that Steve James was our executive producer. For our listeners, that's Steve James, the director of Hoop Dreams. He was able to, I think, point out a lot of those minefields before we encountered them. So we had a lot of discussion early on about how we would tell the football story, which, of course, you know, is a mixed blessing. On the one hand, you have these tropes you have to be careful of so that people don't tune out because they're too caught up in the rhythm that they expect. But on the other hand, it's a natural arc for a narrative. And we had that. We were actually a little bit more worried that the team, which had just come off a season where they won their division or and conference and had made it into the playoffs, we were worried that unfortunately this year, the team was not that good in terms of the um, outcome of the games. So we got very lucky that they won some games at some very opportune times, thankfully for us as storytellers. But I think we also knew from the beginning, the origins of this film were always focused on, you know, the dynamics of our city and the dynamics of race and the dynamics of culture and the dynamics of teenage boys coming of age and becoming young men. So we knew that a lot of our story would take place off of the football field. I I believe you played high school football. Is that correct, Brad? I played high school football, but for all those people who knew me from that football team, I have to say from the outright that I was not a star by any stretch. Okay, that's fair enough. We won't go back and check the records on that. Since you did play high school football and you went through a version of this experience, how did that inform your outlook as the director of this film and the things that you saw going on both on and off the field? Well, playing football in high school really helped me understand what was going to happen and what the culture is like. You know, Emily was shocked by the smell of the locker room and the boys, but also Emily, she is an athlete. But she was not immersed in that male kind of bravado culture of football. And I did really understand what that locker room would be like. So I think that helped a little bit in terms of feeling comfortable filming in the locker room and understanding. And when I say the locker room, I mean it, you know, metaphorically too, like just the bond and culture that football aims for sort of brothers as a family, which is what Coach Davis would call it, going out there and, and fighting a battle every Friday night under the lights before a crowd and hyping yourself up and the rituals that are involved with that and the uh, focus on strength. There's a lot to that culture that ultimately points to the bigger values of becoming men who keep their commitments and who are responsible. Coach Davis is very old school in a lot of ways. He has like one analogy in the movie where he says, you can't quit football, just like you can't quit your woman if you're mad at her. This is a point he makes to one of the moms who's questioning some of his tactics. But you know, underneath that, it's true. He is teaching these boys how to be responsible young men in the world. So yeah, I think playing football made me very accustomed to that world and also be able to kind of predict a lot of the things that we would be seeing. So speaking to that point of the values of the team and the values that Coach Davis are trying to impart to his players, there's a great scene. I think it's my favorite scene in the movie, actually, which involves Fred, who's struggling academically. At one point, his mother, Rosalind, shows up at practice, basically pulls him off the field. She's warned him that if his grades suffer and get to a certain point, she's going to do this, and she does. Coach Davis is just beside himself that she's done that. She's violated some unwritten rule that you, you never come onto his field and pull a player off the field. They have an exchange next to the field. And then they go inside to continue the conversation in private. Of course, you're there with your camera. And their exchange really gets to the heart of some big questions like, 
How do you balance academics and sports? What's the proper role of team sports in young people's lives? And what are the most important values to teach young people? And also, how can parents and coaches coexist? <laughs> um, As you point out, it's a scene that happens in two parts. Part of it is outside and part of it is inside. What we always talked about when editing that scene is, is we kind of let both of them sort of win the day in their arguments at different times. One of the things I love on the outside is that, you know, Coach Davis really does feel like this is his universe. But Roz points out to him in a scene that we often call the Holy Trinity, that actually the hierarchy that he thinks is at play is, is wrong, that in her hierarchy, it's God. And then it's her because she gave birth to Fred. And then it's everything else, including football, which is a little bit different than Coach Davis's hierarchy. What I love about inside is that when Coach Davis is trying to articulate the values that he is uh, modeling and espousing for these kids, he lets himself be vulnerable with Roz. And I think it's a really beautiful moment because he's really kind of pulling back the curtain, sharing with Roz all the dynamics that are at work as he's trying to be you know, a mentor and a coach to these kids in a multitude of ways. Let's talk about Pieris for a second. Pieris is the lone senior that you profile. He's a very big young man. He's new to <laughs> football, but also seems to have the most opportunity perhaps to get a college scholarship to play football and continue his education. He's also a leader on the team. In what ways did you see Pieris grow over the course of the football season? First of all, update on Pieris. He completed the two-year program at Independence U, and he is now going out for D1 football at a number of schools. And I think top of his list right now is the University of Wisconsin. And he also graduated with honors. So how did he grow? He really grew in two major ways. One is as a leader on the team. In, in the beginning of the film, he is not confident. He's a little bit like an unburnished gem. And he is also struggling academically, a little bit, maybe less so than others like Fred, but struggling. And he's also kind of struggling just in terms of responsibility. I mean, there's a scene about college that coaches leading a session with the seniors about applying to colleges and getting your film in front of coaches. And Pierre's just seems scattered in his mind. But by the end, he's really emerged as a team leader. He obviously, I mean, are we worried about spoilers? <laughs> it's kind of a big spoiler. Spoiler alert, folks. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> but he gets, he gets a scholarship to play football in college. He obviously gets the grades to be able to do that because that's part of the requirement. He is physically changed. He's put in the hard work and you can see it in his stamina and, you know, the body sculpting that has happened with him. He's matured socially too, to be able to have the other kids follow him as a leader on the team. And to get to the point where he's joking and has this great rapport with Coach Davis, which, you know, wasn't always the case. I have to say that Pierre's was the very first person that we asked to be in the film. When we first even proposed the film to Mesmer High School, they were all like, oh, you're going to love Pieris. And they would always talk about how he was this huge kid, which he is huge, who played this tiny little instrument called the flute, <laughs> that it was something to behold to watch him play, play flute. We fell in love immediately. As did I, and I'm sure <laughs> the audience will as well. On a darker note, there, there's a very moving scene with Fred's mother making arrangements to mark the birthday of Fred's brother, Tawan who died over a year ago. She talks about how hard it is for Fred to express his emotions about his older brother with whom he was quite close. With all of the boys dealing with pain and figuring out how to express or control your emotions is a big issue. What did you observe about the young men on this team and how they deal with emotion that struck you? Emily said a lot that was really beautiful and poignant about her relationship with Amarion. 
And I think in general, Emily and I had these really helpful and different orientations towards the teenagers in our film. Obviously, Emily is much closer to their age and has a younger brother who's the same age. I am a parent of teenagers. So in some ways that makes me more attuned to the way that teenagers handle emotion and handle what life is dealing them, whether it's the football team, my kids play sports too, or, you know, broader throughout life. My approach, which I think sometimes was successful and sometimes not, was very much like being a parent. You want to be empathic. You want to make a lot of space to listen. Documentary depends on that, no matter the age of the person that you're working with in a film. And at the same time, as a parent, I have to check my instinct to want to guide young people in one direction or another. It's a real art when you're a parent, and it's a real art when you're in that kind of sort of parental figure relationship with teenage subjects in a documentary. For me, it was a lot of navigating that territory. There are a number of scenes where we see usually mom interacting with her son, whether it's Amarion or Max or mm -hmm. Fred, and you're face to face with parenting techniques. Yeah. Sometimes they're more effective than other times and it's, yeah. it's unpredictable. When those scenes are observational, but then when we get into the edit room, it's another reason why I think it was really great to collaborate with Emily because each of us bring a different point of view into the edit room. So some of those scenes, for instance, the scene with Amarion and his mom at dinner, where Amarion is expressing discontent with primarily his economic situation. I think Emily had more insights into sort of the frustrations Amarion was feeling and the way that he expresses them. And I had a lot of, maybe it wasn't so much insights, but sympathy and empathy for also Amarion's mom. Because as a parent, I was thinking a lot too about all of the ways in which Amarion doesn't yet know truly through lived experience what it's like to work hard, to get a paycheck, to try to pay for all the things that your children need and provide for them first. And that truism, the appreciation you're going to feel as a parent is going to come years later. In that scene, I could really feel myself being drawn to Latanya in that argument. Back to that issue of pain and emotion that mm -hmm. roils the worlds of these young men. I couldn't help but wonder about the role of football and the team in helping them grapple with their emotions and their pain. It seems like in some cases it helps them, but mm -hmm. maybe in other cases it's a hindrance. What's your take on the role of football in helping these boys get through these difficult moments? I actually think that football helps all the kids get through difficult moments. I think it gives them a real safe harbor. It gives them a sort of concentrated goal and, and a goal that they achieve together, not individually. I know that in some ways I'm just saying things that are true of sports, but being a parent of two kids who played sports every single season in high school, I could see what I saw with the kids on the Messwood football team. It just gives them, I think, so much strength of mind and focus. Max is the one white player profiled. He lives in a nice neighborhood, but his life isn't picture perfect either. His parents are divorced and there's clearly tension in the home when they're all together. But it does seem like his life is more stable and his future prospects are maybe more predictable. How much of this would you say is a function of class, race, the situation in Milwaukee? To what do you attribute that kind of stability and predictability? Max is not coming from a super wealthy family, but the family does have, in certain ways, more stability. I think that traces its roots to privilege. And again, it's not the privilege that necessarily is one that comes from gross economic benefit, but it's more about the construct of America and how that breaks down in terms of race. And at one point we were thinking about including a white family that was wealthier 
And one of the things that we noticed was that there were certain aspects of the story that were repetitive because in some ways, the, the deeper issue to get at is privilege and, and to see privilege in a way that isn't reductive to money. Because if you're trying to point out the systemic fissures in American society, it almost distracts to reduce it to differences in wealth. Amarian and Max are best friends. I think they have been since first grade. Amarian is black. Max is white. Race doesn't seem to be a factor in their friendship. But on the other hand, there are signs that they may be drifting apart by the end of the film. Yeah, they have drifted back. They've drifted back. That's good to know. I wondered to what extent race plays a role in who young people become friends with and stay friends with throughout the course of their lives? Well, of course, that's hard to answer, but but I think that what you see in the friendship between Max and Amarion is very deep and very genuine, both in the ways in which sometimes the family trips over the issue of race, also in the way that the families care for each other, particularly Max's Mom cares for Marion and makes space in her home for him at any time without making him feel anything other than just who he is. And at the same time, you know, there's some conversation in the film between Max and Marion, which points out what parts of Marion's experience Max is not privy to, or that Marion censors from Max. So it's complicated, just like the way America is complicated in terms of race. But I think one thing that's for sure is that that friendship is a very strong one. It's a very genuine one. Those two have each other's back as recently as this past month have celebrated holidays together and and spent time together. Looking at the film you made versus the film you thought you wanted to make, what do you think changed the most from beginning to end? The biggest change, of course, was pivoting from being in the academic setting of the school to being on the football team and then telling the story of two schools. So without a doubt, that was huge. But I think for me, a lot of what I learned is to sort of check a lot of the assumptions that I had as a kind of a a white male liberal of a certain age, my mid-50s going in to tell this this story with both my colleague, Emily, who is a young Black woman in her 20s, and with teenagers at the core of the story. And, you know, I tend to come in with a lot of assumptions, liberal ones, about race and racism. And so for me, particularly encountering a person like Coach Davis and what he's trying to do in creating this, you might say, race-neutral environment for his kids on the team was something that I brought a lot of skepticism to initially. And I think that in the course of trying to keep my mind open, which is always what you try to do in documentary, and also trying to hard to listen to Emily and her take on what we were seeing as being one where there's a real value, particularly for kids of color, to have a space where it's not all about race. And whereas, as I might have come in with the assumption that, of course, you should talk about race, you should take advantage of this kind of rarefied situation where you have Black kids and white kids as teammates, you know, brothers, if you will, to sort of build the beloved community, which is how John Lewis and Martin Luther King would have said it. But maybe that's a little dated. And maybe I needed to learn more about the dynamics of predominantly Black spaces and predominantly white spaces and what this kind of space was that Coach Davis is trying to create and its value to teenagers. And and to learn more about the pressure that teenagers feel in 2019 when we made the film, but, you know, in the 21st century, which is very different than when I grew up. I mean, obviously, social media has completely changed the array of pressures and dynamics in their lives. And it feeds into what we're talking about. That was probably the terrain of my learning curve the most in making the film, which I'm thankful for. 
How did the team do this year? Well, you're talking to me in December 29th, and sadly, they did not make the playoffs. They did not win many games. So their season has been over since, I believe, late October. There's always (laughs) next year. There's always next year, and there's always another film ahead. I'm excited that we literally locked, just before Christmas, a film called American Reckoning, which I'm directing with Yoruba Richin and will be coming out on Frontline. That will be out on February 15th, both on PBS stations that carry Frontline and on YouTube, and I think also over the top with Amazon. I'm really glad that you and Emily made Messwood. I think it's a wonderful film and it addresses a lot of really important issues. It also does a great job of allowing young people to speak for themselves, which I think is tremendously important. Congratulations to you and Emily on the film and best of luck. Thank you. Do you have a hidden gem, a film that you've seen that you don't think gets the attention that it quite deserves? I think all the time about the Maisel's movie about the Rolling Stones, Give Me Shelter, because in documentary it happens all the time. You know, we start off with a certain premise and the story goes where it goes, particularly on observational films. And so I come back to that film more as inspiration that, you know, clearly they started out making one film and then the Hells Angels killed a man and that changed the entire premise of the film, but they had not shot it that way. So they came up with the idea of showing Mick Jagger the footage and using that as the sort of base of the narrative structure. So it's the art of the pivot.